0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
1: And I'm April Glazer.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America.
1: Yes, welcome to the first episode of If Then. We are recording this afternoon on Wednesday, November 1st. And just giving you the date because there was a lot of news that broke today. And we're going to be discussing a lot of it as well. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the huge news in tech this week. And really, it's the big news for the future of you know, Democratic participation in the country. Uh, and it's that Facebook, Twitter and Google all took a trip to Congress this week to testify at three different hearings about how Russian operatives use their platforms to interfere in the 2016 election and help secure Donald Trump's victory. After that, we'll have a conversation with author and former Facebook lead ad engineer Antonio Garcia Martinez about what he thinks the role of these powerful tech companies is now that we know more about what happened in the run up to the presidential election. He's also the author of the book Chaos Monkeys. And later on in the show, we'll have a segment, Don't Close My Tabs, with some recommendations from us, your dear hosts, about some stuff that we really enjoyed reading this week.
0: All right, April, how are you doing this week?
1: I'm okay. I'm good. A little tired. How are you doing, Will?
0: I'm, it's always it's always sunny in Santa Barbara.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Will, what are you keeping tabs on this week?
0: Well, I can't help but at least pay a little bit of attention to the new iPhone, the iPhone X. All the reviews are out this week from the big tech publications specifically the tech publications that Apple's PR department likes enough to give the phone to uh, early for review purposes. So We're not true. one of those publications, <laughs> sadly. So, so none of us has an iPhone X in our hands. Uh, I have read some of the coverage. And you know the reviews are, are positive. They're not maybe as glowing as you might hope for a phone that costs potentially a $1,000. There was a good post uh, in, in Slate from our colleague, Christina Bonington, about how you might actually miss the home button. You know, they got rid of the home button, and it's now all hand gestures. You can learn that over time, but it was, I I have to think, it was kind of nice to have that one analog button that you could always come back to to start over when things go awry on your device.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the thing about that is that you know, without the home button, you you use the, your face to unlock it now. And that means no more slipping the phone out from under the table, you know, while you're hanging out with your friends to, to casually glance and, and see what's going on or check sports scores or something like that. You now have to actually look at the phone. So, uh, so much for those those clandestine that clandestine phone addiction that we had.
0: <laughs> totally. And it, in general, I mean, it, it just speaks to this general trend that I can't stand where analog buttons are being replaced. By touchscreens everywhere. Uh, I I think of the Tesla Model X and the fact that you don't have any buttons anymore. It's just a totally touchscreen control system. It's actually really hard to do while you're focused on the road. But a story that got less attention this week in the tech press is actually more interesting, in my opinion. The story was that Roger Stone, Trump's good friend and trusted advisor, was permanently banned from Twitter He went on a rant about uh, the CNN anchors who were covering the story of the Robert Mueller indictments of Trump associates, and his rant was filled with profanity. It included personal attacks on CNN anchor Don Lemon that some read as racist and or homophobic. Uh, People widely reported him for it. And Twitter took action, surprising a lot of people. They actually they did not only remove the tweets, but they kicked Roger Stone off of the platform and said he cannot come back.
1: (laughs) That guy, I think, sucks. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Um, And uh, and it's you know, they they followed their policies for once. So maybe this will be the start of a promising trend.
0: And that's the source of the controversy, right, is that they do have these policies, but they're so vague. They're so open to interpretation. And it is, there's really a lot of subjectivity that comes in in deciding who they ban and who they don't. That's going to be a topic that, that is something we talk about fairly regularly on the show going forward, I think.
1: Yeah, consistency is key. All
0: right, so what are you looking at, April?
1: So one headline that caught my uh, eyes this week was that uh, Waymo, uh, the self-driving car arm of of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. So you can kind of think of it as Google's Waymo, but their PR people would correct me on this. Uh, They gave a few reporters a test drive in uh, its new self-driving Chrysler minivan. And they did this up in uh, a fake city that they have going in the Central Valley in California. And it's pretty cool. It's, it's, It's actually a level four a- autonomous minivan, which means that there doesn't need to be anybody in the driver's seat at all. Now, this technology is not even close to hitting the road yet, but uh, they are making progress and they made enough progress that they felt you know, good enough to invite some reporters to take a ride. And so that says something. It's cer- certainly moving along, but it's going to take some time.
0: I have one more important question about Waymo. Mm-hmm. Is that a bad name? For a self-driving car company, or is it the worst name for a self-driving car company? There
1: are way mo better names, but <laughs> I think I think it's like you know, just pick whatever, and they'll call it that when it comes to naming things. But I'm probably bad at the band name game and <laughs> and that type of thing. Um, one piece of news that was really depressing uh, and all too common that we heard this week was uh, another report that uh, a guy in tech named Robert Scoble, who was a known Microsoft blogger, has allegedly uh, harassed and assaulted or and groped, uh, you know, numerous women that uh, have come out with these allegations. And uh, and he was pretty well known for being, you know, this kind of influential character in the tech world. Uh, Unfortunately, as opposed to kind of sulking back and and, and facing these allegations with a level of humility, he decided to blog about it. And in his blog, uh, he actually decided to do everything he could to discredit the women that really bravely came out against him um, and uh, really went through great lengths to describe why, you know, he's not capable of harassing women because he wasn't, you know, capable of hiring or firing these people that came out. Uh, And it was just a really abhorrent narrative that he forwarded. And I just don't know how he's going to come out of this one. But I think, sadly, he was reflective. Uh, you know, the fact that he went on the defense is reflective of the way a lot of men in this industry feel about women who are brave enough to come out.
0: Yeah, and April, your your post on this in Slate was was terrific. Uh, it, was, it was called, Robert Scoble just showed us everything you shouldn't do when you're accused of sexual assault. I got to say, when I read his response, my blood was boiling. It was awful. We're going to move on to the big topic of the week, which is the big tech companies' facebook google and twitter making the trip to capitol hill and testifying before three different committees on their role in facilitating russian meddling in the 2016 u.s election each of the companies sent their general counsel to testify before the senate the senators grilled them they didn't get a lot of great answers april how did we get here
1: You know, we've actually known about Russian involvement in the U.S. elections since summer of last year. And that was when the DNC found a hacker by the name of Guccifer 2.0 had actually infiltrated their servers. But we didn't get to this point where the social media companies were involved until September. And that's when Facebook shared that uh, roughly uh, 400, not roughly, but rather 470 groups that were linked to a single Kremlin uh, supported troll farm called Internet Research Agency bought about $100,000 worth of ads on Facebook that that at the time they said, you know, reached about 10 million people. Now we know as of uh, because of the testimony testimony that was shared that Facebook is now saying that that number is more like, you know, over 120 million. We know that... uh, Twitter said it found 2,752 accounts that were run by Russian government backed operatives and more than 36,000 bots that sent, you know, about 1.5 million tweets over the course of the election. Russian bots were also used after the election on Twitter. We know that they showed up after Charlottesville and they were basically just kind of trumpeting, uh, Sentiment that that the counter protesters that were fighting the white supremacists were actually the ones being violent, you know, and and other kind of counterfactual narratives. We also know that Google, uh, not just not Google necessarily alone, but but mostly YouTube, which is a product with Google, had, uh, you know, 1,100 or 1,108 something like that videos from Kremlin link groups that were found on YouTube. And those received hundreds of thousands of views as well. Uh, And likely, likely those are. Low balls. That's just what they've shared so far. And pretty much what we know so far is all coming from this one Kremlin backed group called the Internet Research Agency. That is essentially a, a troll farm that's been hard at work making all kinds of social media content, you know, largely on these three platforms, Twitter, Facebook and Google. But we also know that they took to Tumblr. We know that they infiltrated Pokemon Go. We know that uh, that, of course, they were on Instagram as well, which is owned by Facebook. And they they really pretty much used every social media tool in their arsenal, pretty much anywhere we go for fun online in America in the past year uh, or, you know, in the year rather leading up to the election had Russian operatives there trying to sway the vote.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really surreal to think that we that we spent 2016 online interacting with Russian trolls on all of our social media platforms in various ways and had no idea. Um, that was a great summary of a really complex topic. I want to pick out something you said right at the beginning, which is that we found out about this in September. To be clear, that's September 2017. That's yes. n- 10 months after the election. That's, uh, what is it, eight months after Donald Trump's inauguration. And that was one of the big questions that the senators had for these companies at the hearings is, how could you not have known before now If you did know, how come you didn't tell us? Why weren't you watching out for this sort of stuff? I mean, these big companies basically have taken over the media, although they won't call themselves media companies. They now control a lot of the means of distribution of the news in our society. They were not thinking about this kind of stuff. Al Franken had a great quote where he was saying, look, you guys have the most sophisticated data processing systems in the world, and you couldn't put two and two together and see that American political ads were being purchased with rubles.
2: You put billions of data points together all the time. That's what I hear that these platforms do. They're the most sophisticated things invented by man ever. Google has all knowledge that man has ever developed. (laughs) You can't put together rubles with a political ad and go like, hmm, those two data points spell out something bad.
1: I mean, and that's the thing, right? Facebook and Google are two of the most powerful, wealthy companies in the world. And they're just basically saying, well, we had no idea. You know, everything that happens on our platform, we don't really control it. We just let people do whatever they want. And so how are we supposed to know this was happening necessarily? And and really, the, it looked like Congress wasn't necessarily buying that. And and in fact, there was a bill that was introduced recently by Senator Warner uh, and, and Senator Klobuchar called the Honest Ads Act that is supposed to regulate, if it's passed, it will regulate these companies in terms of the political ads that are on their platforms. And that's something that bill came up uh, a few times over the course of the hearings as well. Uh, it looks like a number of senators actually do support it. We'll see if it gains momentum you know, following following the disclosures that we learned. Also today in the House hearing, the, uh, member, the representatives of the House shared the ads that were actually on Facebook that were on Twitter not not just ads but rather posts from these groups uh you know the Kremlin back groups i think it's important to remember actually pretended to be you know US advocacy and activist organizations you know to the to the point where they actually held events you know and and had people came to these events in some cases and i mean they they worked incredibly hard You know, as 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 if they were U.S. activists to actually organize people to come out and demonstrate their dissatisfaction with the American political environment.
0: Yeah. And these big tech companies have have really done everything they can to avoid having to take responsibility for the type of content that people are posting on their platform. They've they've really downplayed this problem from the start. Uh, but one of the things that came out in these hearings that I think is incredibly valuable is that these companies were finally forced to turn over some of these ads, and we got to see what they looked like. So, for instance, there were ads that purported to be from, uh, from celebrities. There was one from Aziz Ansari on Facebook where he was holding up a sign saying, uh, you know, if you want to support Hillary text this number to vote and and then you don't have to leave your house to vote and the idea being of course to suppress the democratic vote in that manner i mean this was this was fairly sophisticated stuff in some cases i thought what we got from these hearings was interesting because the companies did not send their ceos probably for obvious reasons they sent their lawyers they sent their general counsels up there to deflect and to 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 downplay and to make sure they didn't say anything controversial april do you do you actually see anything coming of all these hearings
1: I think there's going to I think there could be something coming. And that's because the politicians themselves are implicated in this because, you know, this is about how they're going to get elected, too. Right. I mean, you know, if 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 Russian operatives disrupted the presidential election, why wouldn't they also disrupt a Senate race? You know, and who knows that they haven't? You know, why wouldn't they also disrupt a House race? And so I think politicians are extra worried about this because this is their future on the line, too. Right. This is how Americans vote. This is how Americans are are informed to to vote meaningfully.
0: I think... To me, one of the one of the long term things to look out for here is not just the immediate legislation, the Honest Ads Act that that April talked about, but it's it's how does Washington view these tech companies more broadly? Because for for decades it has taken a hands off approach um, to antitrust to to regulation in general because the internet moves so fast and they recognize that they say, well, we don't want to jump in and say and you know break up a, a monopoly that tomorrow is going to be taken down by a startup anyway. But I think we are. Are seeing a sort of sea change right now potentially in uh, both the public's attitude and politicians attitude toward these companies and whether they actually do need to step in a little bit more and regulate them uh, as opposed to just just waiting to see what happens.
1: And one thing that I've, I've brought up on on the difficulty of regulating these is that we kind of get trapped in the same cycle as campaign finance reform. And I, and I wrote about this in, in Slate. And that is that, you know, politicians actually depend on data-driven ads to get elected. And so long as they, you know, as that, that's part of, you know, how they get elected, these these posts that are bought by PACs or by their own campaigns, or as we know now by foreign governments sometimes, you know, helps them win elections. And it's going to be really hard for them to say, hey, wait, stop doing that. In the same way, it's really hard for them to say, hey, reform the way campaign finance law works, because they actually depend on that massive flow of cash. Alright, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have our interview with author and former Facebook product manager Antonio Garcia Martinez. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So happy about our first guest, everyone. We have Antonio Garcia Martinez. Uh, Antonio worked at Facebook for two years, uh, where he was tasked with figuring out how to turn its digital ad business into a money-minting machine, I understand. Uh, Before Facebook, he worked in ad tech at a couple of Silicon Valley firms, including one that sold to Twitter, and before that, he crunched numbers for Wall Street. He's the author of the book Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us, Antonio.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So there was a lot of news this week. It was a huge week, kind of our Super Bowl in tech news, because <laughs> because uh, Twitter, Facebook and Google all made it to Congress for three different hearings all in a row. Uh kind of investigating exactly what they knew about Russian meddling on their platforms that was intended to sway the election and just in general stoke unrest, you know, in this incredibly divisive political moment in the country uh, that continued long after the elections, we found out, and also kind of like what they could have done to stop it. Uh, so yeah, I guess my big question on these is, you know, did you see this coming? I mean, you worked on you know the the ad platform, and and so much of the conversation is around ads. Of course, it's not just ads that were circulated; it was also on paid posts. But uh, could it, could this have been foreseen?
2: Yeah, let me. I mean, if 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 you allow me, let me establish some bona fides in this area because sure. I know, like your intro, like two years at Facebook. What's this guy know? I mean, it just so happens that in fact, I, so I was there for two years when Facebook's targeting platform sort of came of age, and a lot of the the targeting that we consider creepy now, uh, you know, I, it it turns out I was I helped actually build. I was one of the first product managers on, on a lot of this stuff actually. So if, if you browse the internet and then. See all that stuff inside your Facebook experience. I I literally built the first versions of that. In addition, I think it's also interesting in in the sort of Facebook was really chaotic back then. In that random way, I was also product manager of what's called ads quality. Mm -hmm. And that's the ads police organization that is right now scrambling to stop this whole Russian political ad thing and coming up with plans. And so I, you know, so I have some knowledge of what that team was like. So getting back to your question could I have seen this coming? no, i I so I was i I held those positions during the last presidential election, two thousand oh, and wow. twelve, and yeah, 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 no, no, no so I, I've seen this kind of movie before in a very different context. And if you had told me in two thousand and twelve that Kremlin agents were going to use Facebook ads to subvert American democracy, I would have said you were crazy. And what are you talking about? <laughs> and stop wasting my time? I have things to do. So I think it's a little bit hard and and just I, again, Facebook running the internet now seems like a foregone conclusion. but you have to realize that even at Facebook at the time, it wasn't even obvious that politicians would ever spend money on Facebook, right? Because it was actually a very hard sell. They're usually pretty slow adopters. They're pretty hidebound. They're pretty traditional. They spend money on TV and radio and whatever, right? And so, yeah, no, I think it was very difficult to see. Uh, and, you know, on the flip side, though, let me get a little critical and take off my little secret Facebook ad or whatever. You know, I, I think the company... And, and Silicon Valley thing in general is has such techno-optimism about everything that often it serves as blinders to, like, the the dark heart of the human soul and yes. how these tools can be used <laughs> for more nefarious purposes. And so I think they do bear some blame for, like, like, for example, and it, sorry, I'll shut up at this no, point. No, it's great. It, you know, in, 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 in my book, or I, I mentioned when you join Facebook, you have this process called onboarding, which is very typical to any startup. And you basically get baptized into this new cult that you're joining because every successful startup is a cult and Facebook is no different, right? <laughs> no, it, it's absolutely true. And so they had Chris Cox, who's, who was then head of product and still is, it's actually one of the longest serving employees at Facebook, very important guy came out and gave this very convincing charismatic spiel about how Facebook was the New York Times of you, channel you, your own personalized media, everything. And so this this notion of Facebook being a newspaper to the world was part of the vision in 2012. Okay, so this is not something they made up at the last second. But it, it never really occurred to us, and, and, and I was as much sort of, you know, enchanted by this vision as anybody else. It was never obvious that it would... That there would be a negative side to that, that this massive filter bubble would happen, that political polarization on a massive scale would happen, that it would be misused by Russian agents, whatever. It just really didn't occur to us. And and I think, yeah, I mean, it's just that techno-optimism is what's what's largely to blame there, I think.
1: And that techno-optimism is just apolitical, is what you're saying.
2: Right. I mean, uh, Silicon Valley, I mean, it tends to skew left. It can also skew kind of right libertarian. The reality is, by and large, they tend to ignore politics. They, they, They completely ignore the government. Uh, and, and just assume it kind of doesn't exist there when, when they don't actually hold it in contempt.
0: So I wonder if this is a good time to, to roll a clip that we have from the hearings where Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana was grilling Facebook's general counsel, Colin Stretch. The truth of the matter is you have five million advertisers. They change every month, every minute, probably every second. You don't have the ability to to know who every one of those advertisers is, do you? Today, right now, not your commitment. I'm asking about your ability. To,
2: to to your question about seeing essentially behind the platform to understand if there are show corporations, of course the answer is is no. We cannot see behind the activity.
0: And so my question about that is, is the scale of this ad platform The part of the problem itself, I mean, they've built this platform that is too big for humans to manage. But it turns out that that a lot of the stuff that slips through the cracks can be hugely influential and and can even do things like potentially uh, shape the outcome of an election.
2: You know, I think the answer there is, is both yes and no. I think w- w- one of the real challenges when you talk to people who haven't worked inside Facebook or a company like Facebook is is trying to convey that notion of scale. Two billion people and basically a third to a quarter of the internet everywhere except China. That's what you're talking about. And so it's often, even inside the beast, even with access to you know, all the databases and all the dashboards they have, it's very difficult to understand what's going on in some small part of that empire very often. But addressing this specific question, you know, there, it's funny, if I recall correctly, Colin Stretch um, responded saying, yes, you're right, it's hard for us to do this. And, you know, that's that's kind of not exactly true. I mean, in terms of the specific challenge that we have right now, and, and which I, I believe was addressed in, in, in later testimony, which is how do you spot, you know, Russian agent ad accounts, you know, that actually, I, I don't feel that's actually an intractable problem, to be honest. And, and I'll cite a couple examples for you. Facebook, for example, just to cite one example, heavily polices... And filters alcohol advertising. You might ask, what's the big deal about alcohol? Well, alcohol advertising, whether you realize it or not, is very heavily regulated in every country in the world. Not only that, those regulations differ markedly. Right in Saudi Arabia, it's basically illegal.
1: No children in the U.S. Right, right.
2: right? Yeah. And then it's not. I think it's actually minors. I think or it's minors. twenty-one. It might even vary by state. Who knows? And then in Europe, every every state in Europe has a different age. And believe it or not, Facebook programmatically filters all ad content for any alcohol-related stuff. Applies a filter based on what country is being targeted and has special business logic that reflects the legislation in that country, right? Which is why I'm citing the example here. Politics could also work. And everyone asks, well, how do you spot political ads? Well, I mean, you can control for them, for God's sakes. I mean, how do you spot a vodka ad in Russia, for example, or anywhere, right? Facebook already kind of solves this problem, right? So you could do the exact same thing in the political sphere, apply your country-specific rules and go from there. The other thing I would mention is, and I think most people actually don't realize this and I think this might be material to many things we discuss here, Facebook actually has a huge political ad sales and operations team. Huge. Huge. It's like they have one of their biggest offices is the office in D.C. I don't think most people actually realize that. And it's not just for lobbying. That's also sales, right? Mm -hmm. It's hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. And so... And it's already the case that when large accounts come in, they effectively get managed by an account manager. Embedding, of course, is another part of the story that Trump had people from Facebook helping them, whatever. The point being is that there's fairly high-touch service for a lot of these large accounts. And you already have a large number of people who could basically do due diligence on your client. I cite the example in Wall Street, you have what are called know your customer rules. Like I was, mm-hmm. I, I worked at Goldman and I had to go through the compliance training. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can't walk, walk up to Goldman with half a billion dollars in cash and open a trading account. Like there's, a, you, you absolutely cannot do that. They, they, they put you through the ringer and, and in a sense, they, they bear criminal responsibility for you doing and what you do on their platform, right? Facebook could, could have the same liability to its advertising customers and flag certain accounts as being political. And basically, only those political ads, ad accounts could ever run political ads. Like that, you know, this isn't such an intractable problem.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is that that it's not impossible to fix technically. The issue is that this was a totally unforeseen problem. Right. And I, I, I would submit that that still is a problem of scale because when you're this big doing something that has never been done by a company before there are inevitably going to be unforeseen problems that come up yeah. and even if they're technically manageable it's not realistic that you could foresee all of them and manage them in advance we're going to be playing you know we're going to be playing whack-a-mole here for a long time I think but yeah. I wanted to raise a phrase that you that you used in an editorial in, in Wired today that I thought was really good you talked about how Facebook has gotten in the past what you've called the algorithmic pass basically the idea that that because they're a technology platform and not a media company, that they don't bear responsibility for the, the content that appears on there. It's just an algorithm that's deciding what to show people. It's not human news judgment that's coming into play here. Right. This is one of the big central questions right now. It's something that these companies were grilled about in the hearings. You argue that we actually should be very wary of rescinding that algorithmic pass. You know, everybody right now wants Facebook to step in and make sure that Russian trolls aren't screwing up our elections, but you're worried about what happens if we if we anoint Facebook the arbiter of, of what's reasonable or what's okay in terms of political speech, right?
2: Picture, picture this, to me, kind of a slightly horrifying vision. <laughs> picture Mark Zuckerberg or one of his lieutenants in an editorial meeting. And for those not familiar, an editorial meeting and your average, you know, newspaper type setup is the meeting of the big shots at say the new york times or i assume slate in which they basically decide what are the news today right they they decide what you read right and it's that editorial meeting construct that this whole algorithm kind of undid because at the end of the day you know facebook doesn't really decide what truth is it just serves you what either drives clicks or drives social engagement right and i just picture that moment for, picture that for a moment that facebook kind of decides what's news, and what is a source of news versus not a source of news. And, and, and by the way, there's already a precedent for this. I mean, we've already kind of, lo- there's been so many, there's been some, Facebook has been in so many media cycles, we've already kind of forgotten. But I remind in that same piece about, what was it, eight or nine months ago? Or actually, no, it was over a year ago. They hired a small editorial team mm-hmm. uh, to improve what's called trending topics, which is this horrible copy of Twitter's trending thing on the right that, and I say it's horrible because, you know, it used to show you, you know, what, Kim Kardashian tweeted about when there'd been like some horrible terrorist so attack. And it was so arbitrary and it was obviously like broken. And Facebook in its desperation actually hired a bunch of kind of wet behind the ears journalism interns to actually, you know, manually fix it. And of course they managed them horribly. They put them in a the basement. You know, these were young kids. They started blabbing about it and eventually they all got fired. Right. And it's like, you know, what, you know, a company like Slate, does all the time. I'm sure you have interns and manage them, you know, well, and there's no problem and there's no fiasco that comes out of it. Facebook can't even manage that. Right. And so the world, to me, the big irony here is that Facebook has too much power. Right. And so everyone's asking them to have more power. Right. Which is what which which is what this would mean. Right. Because, you know, people always have this conspiracy theory about, oh, well, but the person who designs the algorithm can design what comes out of it. I mean, that's not that's not really true. I mean, they do in a second order way in that they determine what metric matters, click through rate, social engagement, whatever. But they don't just put in a little thing saying, oh, you know, knock down Fox News five points or knock down Rachel Maddow, you know, 10 points or whatever. It's, it's not, not really how it works. Right. right. And so, I, yeah, I, that's that to me, that's, you know, it, Facebook has become kind of Mark Zuckerberg has become the editor in chief to the world. And I really wonder if that's if that's the world that we actually want.
1: I don't know if I want him to curate my news, but uh, but you know see? he he's already doing a lot of that for folks. But what I'm what I'm kind of hooked on is is uh, you're saying that that this wasn't that that people didn't see this coming, and that just really surprises me because there were just so many stories, particularly like after the subprime mortgage crisis of, you know, uh, different communities being targeted through online ads, you know, in different ways, particularly communities of color being targeted specifically with online ads. You know, uh, people were even bringing up concerns around the 2012 election that Facebook had embedded people, you know, into these into Romney's campaign and and into Obama's campaign. And it just seems like there were all of these like huge Red flag, saying like, "Hey, ad targeting is is pernicious and dangerous, and, and can negatively affect communities, and 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 can profile people in the same way that we profile people in real life." And you know, politicians are using these platforms in in new and exciting and maybe scary ways. And I feel like this is a conversation that's been happening for a while. Was Facebook just not listening?
2: You know what? I can put on my Facebook hat and give you the fi- the unfiltered Facebook spin on each of the issues you mentioned because I I know exactly what the soundbite here would be. Well,
1: I don't want the spin. I, want- I know, not the spin, but like to,
2: <laughs> but to, 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 so that you understand how they view the world yeah. and why to them it didn't set off alarm Thank bells. You. So the one thing is so the embedding thing which this is another example I think it's George Lakoff the the Berkeley linguist who has this whole thing about how, you know, you know Tax cuts become tax relief and you sort of shape language a certain way, right? So embedding definitely seems like an over gesture to make make a thing sound more sinister than it is, okay? Here's how Facebook ads really work, particularly if, if you've got large budgets every large advertising in the United States and Europe has embedded Facebook employees inside of them, right? Ford, Procter & Gamble, Burberry, BMW, name your large several million dollar account, everyone is embedded there. I'm sure Facebook offered Hillary embedded employees, which they may have refused, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So Facebook, there's always Facebook people inside pitching at them and trying to educate them how to use the platform. So the fact that there was Facebook employees inside Trump wouldn't necessarily set off alarm bells. Like, well, every every politician ha- or not everyone past a certain size has embedded Facebook employees. Why is this alarming? Every account we have has embedded people in it, right? So to them, it would just be business as usual. I think without that context, people look at that and think, oh my God, were they collaborating with Trump? It's like, well, no, everybody, you know, they kind of helped everybody. And then your other point, the other point was the... Um, the just
1: that there were all oh, the these payday loan thing.
2: flags. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny as the targeting PM, you used to have to, Think about things like this, like or targeting payday loans is another one, right? Mm-hmm. And can you can you target ethnicities? You you can now on Facebook, actually. Yeah. Um. So this is an extreme viewpoint that everyone listening here is probably going to disagree with. But to me, I don't know. Data kind of wins, right? And and the and the fact is, if the targeting kind of works and they tend to convert higher than others,
0: I don't know what's the problem. Like it's not an illegal product, right? What well, I. <sighs> No, I one of them was a, one of them was illegal. I mean, one oh, of them was it? illegal. There, there, well, there, there was a product that that was exposed by ProPublica where uh, they were actually allowing housing advertisers to exclude people based on this this racial affinity oh. category they have. Oh, and sure. that's yeah. that's redlining. You know, that's oh, yeah, that is straight yeah. up illegal. And okay. so I think, you know, I think there there is an issue where the the folks at Facebook do not they're not experts on on what's legal, let alone what's ethical here. And so, you know, they can run into trouble that way. well, sorry, just one comment there. Like,
2: probably 10% of the time I spent there in, in targeting was actually talking to legal to figure out whether things were legal. And the reality is in the U.S., you know, the redlining thing, obviously, because it comes out of the mortgage world, which has been around for decades. I mean, there's there's hard laws there. But in general, there actually aren't – there isn't a lot of legislation around advertising in the United States. And mostly – because it's – and in Europe, that's not true because there, there's a lot of under – employed European bureaucrats who regulate everything there. But here, it's considered to be kind of a consumer choice issue. And so most of the time, the decision came down to ethics, which are kind of hazily defined. And mostly, you know what it came down to? It was basically this sort of weird Game of Thronesy. well, what did Google do? What did Apple do here? And then someone would move a piece and someone else would move another piece. And maybe we all together do this kind of edgy thing and see if we all get away with it. And that's kind of how it worked. So, yeah.
1: No. Consumer choice can fall by the wayside, though, I think uh, when things are so hyper-targeted. And so right. there's like there might not be a lot of legislation here, but that means there's also a lot of room for legislation, right? <laughs> well,
2: fu- it, you know, it's funny you mentioned ads. <laughs> you used the word creepy before. So ads are always either crappy or creepy. There's never in between, right? The either It's funny, every complaint I hear about Facebook, the ads either completely suck and are completely irrelevant or it feels like it's big brother. No one ever said, oh, Goldilocks, it's, this was just perfectly targeted. It was just suggestive enough that, I, you know, I actually have an interest in that, but I don't feel that compelled to buy it, right? Nobody ever says that,
0: so it's a weird, yeah. All right, so I have one last question for you. Sure. So there was a piece in the New York Times the other day that I found really interesting where they basically asked nine different experts what would you do to fix Facebook? What's the biggest problem and how should we be solving it? They got several different responses. Um, Ellen Powell said that the company needs more diversity at the highest levels. Um, Eli Pariser, the author of The Filter Bubble, said they need to be optimizing for time well spent instead of optimizing just for clicks and likes and that sort of thing. And the one I found most compelling was actually from Jonathan Albright, who is at Columbia University's Tau Center for Digital Journalism. He said the issue really lies in the, the mechanisms of the newsfeed algorithm itself. This is an algorithm that is optimizing for people's emotional reactions to content, not just like, but there was actually a recent tweak to the algorithm that emphasized other emojis like wow or or like love over the like button in terms of uh, deciding which content to put at the top of people's feeds. He said, as long as that is how you're deciding what to show people, you're going to have this issue because you've basically built a system that is optimized for somebody like Russian trolls or anybody who's trying to manipulate public opinion to come in and tell people what they want to hear, uh, to appeal to them with these divisive messages or these messages that get them all riled up politically. And that's really what the algorithm is doing. That's a, that's a good thought, right? Because it, it seems like, you know, we engage with
2: that sort of negative content, you know, it's like... I don't know but I I but I don't know if if I don't know if that changes human nature right like we all we still want to look at the car crash we still want to hear you know the person the bad person who got punished cuz we're all kind of moralistic at heart um I mean to me the real enemy the real thing here uh, you know that is what's called cognitive dissonance. It's one of my obsessions, right? Which I, if your listeners aren't familiar, what it basically means is humans tend to squirm at any data or evidence of something that goes against their worldview. We as humans are constantly constructing models about how the world does work or more specifically should work, right? And then any reminder of that's contrary to that, we just tend to shun because we find it super uncomfortable, right? And Facebook basically, the filter bubble works based on that. We just we just love hearing things that confirm our worldview mm-hmm. and hate things that oppose it. We have an existential reaction, R- right? Right. right, right, no, no, it's really... Yeah. In a, in I have it too. Sometimes when I when I read some content, I'm like, "Wow, this is a really uncomfortable feeling," and so I I think like that's a great suggestion from his point of view. But I think it's going to run up against the rocks of cognitive dissonance. And yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be nice if you optimize if there was like a respect emoji or like you know this really made my day emoji, like positive emotion rather than negative. But I really wonder if that would overwhelm both the cognitive dissonance and the fact that still negative emotions still get get us going more than sort of positive ones do.
1: Last last question. I'm I'm curious. uh... If the outcome of this is that there's no new legislation and Congress doesn't do anything, which is very expected, uh, and Facebook is just allowed to do whatever it wants and and continue on its merry way, is there a chance that people will just start to hate Facebook because it's so untrustworthy and it's just become such a trash fire that everyone's just like, and it'll just wither away into this nothing thing? Or, Or will it just continue to grow and people will love the trash fire?
2: Oh, but they already hate Facebook. The, the the relationship of of a Facebook user to Facebook is that between like an addict and his drug, right? Like they they need it, but they but they hate they hate the drug and they hate themselves for needing it in that self loathing way. Like the amount of and some of it's merited, and I think a lot of it isn't, frankly. But the amount of anti Facebook like animus there is in the general media swirl, I think is is huge. So I. For started, I, I, I slightly disagree with the premise. I think we might actually be a societal inflection point in which even Congress might be willing to regulate Facebook. Or I, I hope think, so. But but accepting the the assumption in your question, um, yeah, I don't see people not using Facebook. the the only The only threat to Facebook that I see is that again, there's some other cocktail of pixels and smartphones like Snapchat, for example, that is just how people interact with the outside world and somehow Facebook misses the boat and doesn't manage to acquire them. And then therefore that's an existential sh- threat. But like, you know, all these rumors like, oh, teenagers aren't using Facebook, this, that, the other thing, they're, you know, they aren't, they aren't really real. I don't, see, I don't see that being a threat to Facebook.
1: It's a huge ship to sink.
0: All right. So I th- I, th- I, think we can wrap, I think we can wrap on that note, which is that Facebook, we all agree, is a trash fire. And yet we're all drawn to it like trash moths to a trash flame. Antonio Garcia Martinez, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you. Oh, likewise. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. All right. When we come back, we'll have our little segment that we call Don't Close My Tabs. It's our recommendations on the most interesting things we read this week. Okay. So April, it's time for Close My Tabs. It's a parting suggestion from each of us about something great we read or saw this week online. What stayed with you, April?
1: Okay. So for me, a tab that I left open for a really long time because I read it a few times was this story from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, It was entitled, Russian-backed Facebook accounts staged events around divisive issues. And in that story, they described at least 60 events that were on all sides of the political spectrum uh, that were actually organized before and after the 2016 election. And, you know, over 20 of those actually had people show up. And that just really, to me, illustrated how incredibly deep uh, Russian infiltration of the the campaign uh, and of just American political life is right now or was. It's, it's hard to put the timing on it.
0: Yeah, that's that's it's such a, an emblem of our surreal moment right now when we have people going to to fake events that they think were staged by, Texan advocacy groups that they support, and in fact were staged by Russian trolls trying to mess with our political system. My uh, my tab this week that I want to highlight was a a little post in the New York Times. It was very easy to miss. I loved the headline though. It was, it was called "So This Happened in Our Comments Section Today," and it was about a a particular reader comment on a New York Times story. Uh, The the commenter was named Christine MCM. Her comment appeared under a story about the Republican Party's relationship with President Trump. And I want to just I want to read you the comment because it's it's so good. Zero optimism that the Democrats can ever regain. Hello. Hi. Oh, you're there. Are you outside? Oh, well, let me come to the door. I'm icing my knee and I'm hard boiling some eggs. I'll turn them off. All right. So it goes on and on like this. And as some readers. so, So. you know, First of all, readers were, were saying, what is going on here? Something went wrong. As some people quickly surmised, what had happened was that this commenter was trying to dictate her comment, maybe to her phone or to her Alexa device. And she forgot to stop the dictation when she got distracted and started doing something else. It all came out as a comment on the story. And the New York Times editors, to their credit, actually briefly highlighted it as one of the recommended comments on that story. It
1: was one of the few things I've read recently that just made me really happy because it was just so funny and 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 random and and you know well put together in terms of a story. One more thing I want to say, I know that that's kind of the point of don't close my tabs is that Uh, today, you know, actually right before we recorded this, uh, a ton of the ads that were actually and not just ads, but posts that uh, that that Russian backed groups post put onto Facebook and onto Twitter were released. Uh, And you can find those. We're going to be writing about it in Slate. uh, But, you know, the Daily Beast wrote about it. BuzzFeed wrote about it. But I really recommend listeners take a moment to, to 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 look at these ads and and think maybe did you come across them? You know these these are just so incredibly uh, manipulative and divisive and 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 deeply disturbing. Some of the content in them and and so I think this is a moment for us all to become more media literate because we can actually pull back the curtain and and see what these uh, what these foreign operatives were doing. <laughs> Well, that's our show. A reminder that we'll be releasing new shows every Wednesday after this week, not Thursday. Today was special.
0: And you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. It's our brand new account. And you can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus.
1: And I'm at April Laser. It's like my name, April Glazer, but without the G and without an L.
0: <laughs> and thanks again to our guest, Antonio Garcia Martinez, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at at AntonioGM. If you have a question or comment for us, you can email as well at ifthen@slate.com.
1: If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs.
0: And we love him. Thanks also to Don Ollis and A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara.
1: Thanks to KeyQED in San Francisco and Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman for engineering. We'll see y'all next Wednesday.
0: Bye now.